you get a chance to go out and get the mail, and there's good stuff in the mail at Christmas time, right? There's like good cards in there, and you get a chance to get updates from people and see how their families are growing and changing when they send you um, pictures of their family. And I also love it that you get some cards that just kind of make you smile. And so I brought along this morning a couple of the cards that I've gotten that made me smile and thought maybe you'd get a little bit of a chuckle out of it too. I have a first one here that I don't know if you can see it really well, but that's Rudolph in the sky with a nice string of toilet paper hanging off of his hoof. And it says below there, more than anything, um, Dasher wants to put the reindeer tryouts behind him. <laughs> like, just wants to forget about that. I got a little smile out of that one. This other one, this is my very favorite one. This is Santa at the bar with Rudolph. Rudolph's looking a little bleary-eyed. If you can see the caption at the bottom, Santa's on his phone. It says, Rudy's lit. We're good to go. (laughs) Another one that I got, this one was from my sister. Um, One, of course, that only a sibling can send to you. It says on the outside, remember when we were little and we sat on Santa's lap and asked him what we really wanted for Christmas? On the inside, it says... I think you were supposed to be a puppy. (laughs) You get some of those cards that just make you smile. But then you also get the cards in the mail that are really pretty, too. Like we have this image here of just that serene stable and the the star is shining down on top of it. And if you saw that one in real life, you would know that it had like glitter and stuff on it, just made it sparkly and pretty. But we also got this one in the mail that's just this beautiful image of Mary and Joseph. And she's got her beautiful white um, scarf on there and the beautiful little white blanket in the basket and the manger there for baby Jesus and it's just so pretty and it's so crisp and it's so clean and it's so beautiful and I look at those and I think that's not reality. (laughs) Mary just gave birth in a barn. I don't think she's sitting there with white claws and her hands folded neatly in her lap because you know I've given birth and I've been in a barn and neither one of those things are nearly (laughs) as pristine as the Christmas cards would make it out to be. And I think sometimes we do this with the Christmas story or the gospel in general. We try to make it neat and clean and tidy, and we try to pretty it up so that it's all pretty and it, and it just sparkles with all of these things, and we think it's just this, this perfection. And in one sense, it is perfection. The gospel is God's story of rescue and redemption, and yes, that is perfection in a certain sense. But in another sense, The gospel is racked with reality and all of the messiness and the dirtiness and the born in the barnness that comes along with that. And so when we look at the whole gospel, when we look at the whole Christmas story, I think we need to remember that that there's a very messy piece to it. God came not just to make everything look perfect or clean on the outside. He came to get in the middle of the mess that surrounded him. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to follow Jesus into that messiness. That's what Christmas was about, God entering the middle of this mess. We have a clip for you this morning that just speaks very eloquently um, about Christmas time and Jesus coming to get messy. And so I'd like you to take a look at this clip this morning. While they were there, time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son she wrapped him in cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end God had this messy plan a plan to save the world and to do that he was going to send his son 
Where does the God of the universe send his son? Where, where, where does the King of Kings and Lord of Lords come? To a barn, a stable, a, a manger of all places. Certainly no place fit for a king. But then again, this wasn't any ordinary king. When I say it was messy, I mean messy. It, it was a barn, a stable, right? So you've got animals and animal stuff, manure, mud, a pitiful place for people, much less a place for the king of kings to be born. Why would God do that? Well, I can't tell you for sure, because Isaiah explains to us that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But that same prophet, 400 years before Jesus was born, said, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and that he has laid our iniquities on him. You see, Jesus came to a messy place. Oh, yeah, a barn, a manger, that's messy. But he came to a messy world. Why? Because the shepherd was coming to take care of the sheep, to prepare a way for them to go home. That's what a shepherd does. He lives where the sheep are. He sleeps where they sleep. He eats where they eat. It got Jesus in trouble. Why did Jesus eat with sinners? Because that's what the shepherd does. An angel appeared to the shepherds in the field and said, this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. A sign. You ever wondered what that sign was? A sign for what? Maybe a sign that Jesus is accessible to everyone. A sign that the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills can relate to a homeless person. Because Jesus never had a home, never had a place to rest his head. Maybe it was a sign that God would have nothing to do with the social status of mankind. A sign that he detests the splendor of humans it's not worthy of him but it was a sign for us that we should follow suit in fact the Apostle Paul later on would write we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus although he was the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but that he made himself nothing becoming a servant being made in human likeness a servant you see, being a servant is, is messy. And Jesus set this incredible example for us. I mean, he got down on his knees and he washed feet. The God of the universe, the God who deserved the best of everything, got on his knees. He's the God who came to the world and was laid in a manger, a feed trough of all places. Why such a messy place? Because he was following a messy plan. So needless to say, that very first Christmas was dirty. It was grimy, it was, it was filthy. <laughs> but thank God it was. Because without it, what a mess we'd be in.
love the question that he poses in the middle of that clip. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? And the simple answer is because that's what love does. It gets into the thick of it. And if we're going to learn how to love the way Jesus loves, we need to learn how to get into the middle of it like him. There's a great story in Luke chapter 10 that talks about what it means to love with this messy kind of love. And this is the story that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can flip over open to um, Luke chapter 10, or you can pull your outline out of your program guide. The scripture is also listed in there for you this morning. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this, and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this guy comes to Jesus, and he's saying, he's an expert in the law, and he's saying, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And the answer comes back, you need to love God, and you need to love people. You need to love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what it all comes down to. And so this guy takes it a step further and wants to know exactly who is my neighbor exactly who am I supposed to love? And it seems kind of like he's just looking for where the bar is. What is the the minimum expectation of exactly who do I need to love in order to just make doing what I need to do enough to get eternal life, but not doing any more than what I really need to do? And so he poses this, this question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Exactly who do I need to love? And Jesus responds to his question with a story. Jesus was the king of parables, the king of stories. And so he responds to him with this story. And the story that he responds with is a very messy story. It's messy on a whole number of levels. It's messy socially. It's messy politically. It's messy religiously, emotionally. The whole way around, it's a messy story. And this is the story that we're going to kind of dig into today. How do we live out the whole gospel? How do we learn to love our neighbor and understand who our neighbor is, even in the middle of this messy story, this messy reality of love that God calls us to? So let's take a look at our first point in your, in your outline there this morning. It says, loving my neighbor gets messy when I allow my heart to be moved by compassion. When I allow my heart to be moved by compassion. So Jesus launches into this story in response to this man's question, Jesus launches into the story, and beginning in verse um, 30, he says, A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. I want you to underline three little words towards the end of that passage that says he felt compassion. Underline those words. He felt compassion because that's the key in this story. So if we look at the players that Jesus is putting into the story, we first of all see that there is a Jewish man. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. So they're going to relate to the fact that this is a Jewish man who has been beaten up and he's left for dead beside the road. This was a very dangerous road, um, the road from Jericho to our Jerusalem to Jericho would have been um, a very dangerous road to travel. 
lot of robberies. It wasn't a road that you would hang out on a whole lot. Um, other places in scripture, they, they're pretty sure they're referring to that as the valley of the shadow of death. Um, the valley of death was where that road ran. So this was a dangerous road. This Jewish man was there. He was beaten up. He was left for dead. This would have really resonated with the, the Jewish audience. So that's the first guy in the story that Jesus is telling. Then he introduces the next character. The next guy who comes along is who? A priest. In the Jewish culture, in their social structure, a priest was a really big deal. He was pretty high up there on the ladder. He's one of those guys whose office smelled of rich mahogany kind of guys. You know, he's, he's a big deal. He was um, the one who was responsible to represent the people before God. He was responsible to sa- make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. He was responsible to interpret the law. And so this guy had a lot of important stuff going on. He was, he was all that and more, okay? All that in a bag of chips, as some people might say. And so he was this important guy, and he walks along, and he sees the guy over there. But what's his response? He just keeps right on going. And we can surmise that perhaps he keeps right on going because he was too important to be bothered with something like that. That was a get-your-hands-dirty kind of thing, and that's just not who I am. I'm too important. I'm traveling along this road, so clearly I'm going for some purpose. Maybe he was scheduled to speak at the synagogue. Maybe he was ready to present his religious thesis to a bunch of Pharisees. I don't know what he was doing. But he had some place that he was going, and he was too, too busy to stop and be bothered with this guy who was beside the road. He was too important for that. And besides, if he had gone over and touched him and the man was actually dead, that would have made him as a priest ceremonially unclean, which meant that would have messed up his entire week. Like, it, that would have just screwed him up for the rest of the week, because once you're ceremonial unclean, there's this whole process you have to go through. So he just couldn't be bothered. So he walks right on by. So the priest walks by, and then who's the next character that Jesus introduces in the story? The temple assistant, or a Levite. Um, Other translations say a Levite, a guy from the tribe of Levi, who served as a temple assistant. Now, a, a Levite wasn't quite as important in the social structure in the Jewish culture, but he was up there pretty high, too. He functioned in some prestigious circles. He worked in the temple. Um, He was responsible for the liturgy in the temple. He was responsible for the protection of the temple. And so he was was a prestigious guy as well. And so what does the Levite do? He's walking along. He sees the guy, and he goes over, and he looks at him. So he didn't completely ignore him. Um, I would surmise to say that this is probably the first recorded case of rubbernecking that's happening, which is essentially what's going on here. He goes over because he wants the information about what is happening, what is up with this guy. He's laying there, but we don't see any heart response to him. There's no way that his heart engages. So he crosses over to go over and to get the information about the guy. And I kind of, this might be a little gross to you, but I kind of think of it as in the same token as if you're taking a walk along the street someday and you see some roadkill and you kind of have this morbid sense of curiosity that wells up in you and you go over to look at it to figure out what it is and maybe you poke it with a stick a little bit just to see what is that thing. Does anybody else ever do that? Yeah. I told someone else that this week and they're like, have you done that? I'm like, yeah, I have. <laughs> kind of gross. I don't know. Maybe it's the farming roots in my family. I don't know. But... Um, but yeah, he goes over and essentially just pokes him with a stick. But no, I'm never ever going to touch that because there's no heart engagement with it. It's just roadkill, you know? And that's the implication that the, is this, this Levite's response. So Jesus in the story he has this Jewish man that's beaten up. He has the priest 
He has the temple assistant. And so the next logical person to come along in the flow of the story, according to the listeners, would be just a regular Jew, right? Joe Schmo Jew coming along. Joe Schmoverstein is coming along next, okay? So he's coming along is what they would have expected. That would have been the next notch down the, the social ladder there. But it's not a Jew that comes along next, right? It's not a Jew. It's a Samaritan. So instead of going from priest, temple assistant, to just one, another notch or two down the ladder, Jesus like jumps completely off the ladder. This is a Samaritan. Someone that was considered by the Jews to be despicable and dirty. Um, they were considered half-breeds because they had been Jews that had interbred with other cultures and other tribes, other nations, and now they were considered unclean. They were genealogical mutts as far as the respectable Jewish people were concerned. And there was this great contempt and this great animosity between those two groups of people. And this is the guy that Jesus makes out to be the hero in the story. Not the respectable ones in their culture, but this guy that is completely despised and despicable in their eyes. And what makes this guy the hero? It's his compassion. It's his compassion that draws Jesus to say, this is the guy who is going to be the neighbor. This is the guy who had the least logical reason to help the man by the side of the road. And yet he's the one that jumps in and does something. It says that the Samaritan was moved with compassion. And the Greek word for compassion in this text is a very vivid word. It's the, the kind of compassion, it literally means like intestines or bowels, which I know is kind of gross. This is becoming a very gross Christmas message, isn't it? Um, but it's this vivid word that means like it's coming from your gut. Like it's the something inside of you that just comes from the innermost part of who you are and just oozes out of you and compels you to do something. That's this word for compassion that's being used here. And so obviously the Samaritan isn't just feeling badly about this guy laying there. He's feeling compassion for this guy. Like it's coming out of the middle of him. And so we know that his response to the Jew laying there isn't based on just what I should do or some idea of what might be nice to do. But instead he's seeing the person and the need that's in front of him. He's not seeing the social status. He's not seeing the political structure. He's not seeing his own agenda or his own schedule. He's seeing the person and the need, and he's responding to that need. I think, sadly, in our culture today, we've lost a lot of that art or gift of compassion to see a need and just feel that gut-level desire to respond to it in some way. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the story of Kitty Genovese. It's a story from um, the 1960s, as a matter of fact, often hailed today as probably the day that the Good Samaritan died in American culture, um, referred back to frequently as a very sad day. And I'd like to read to you just the story of Kitty Genovese to kind of give you a picture of a Good Samaritan story in our current culture, but sadly without the Good Samaritan to be a part of it. This is her story as recorded in um, Newsday. It was just after 3 a.m. A red Fiat rolled slowly through the darkness into a parking space adjacent to the Long Island Railroad Station in Kew Gardens. The young woman behind the wheel emerged from the car and locked it. She began the 100-foot walk toward her apartment building. Suddenly, a man overtook her and grabbed her. She screamed. Residents of the nearby apartment houses turned on their lights and threw open their windows. The woman screamed again, He stabbed me! Please help me! A man in a window shouted, Let that girl alone! The attacker walked away. 
apartment lights went out and windows slammed shut. The victim staggered toward her apartment, but the attacker returned and stabbed her again. I'm dying, she cried. Windows opened again. The attacker entered a car and drove away. Windows closed, but the attacker soon came back a third time. His victim had crawled inside the front door of an apartment house. He found her sprawled on the floor and stabbed her still again. This time, he killed her. It was not until 3.50 that morning, March 13, 1964, that a neighbor of the victim called the police. Officers arrived two minutes later and found the body. They identified the victim as Kitty Genovese, age 28. Kitty Genovese. It was a name that would become symbolic in the public mind for the dark side of the national character. It would stand for Americans who were too indifferent or too frightened or too alienated or too self-absorbed to get involved in helping a fellow human being in dire trouble. A term, the Genovese syndrome, would be coined to describe the attitude. Detectives investigating Genovese's murder discovered that no fewer than 38 of her neighbors had witnessed at least one of the killer's three attacks, but had neither come to her aid nor called the police. The one call made to the police came after Genovese was already dead. We read that story and we're outraged. Like, how can that happen? How can people see that kind of carnage, hear what's going on, and offer nothing by way of assistance? What is wrong with people, right? And we like to think when we read that story, if I had been there, I would have done something, anything. You can't just let a woman be killed right there next door to you and do nothing about that. I would have done something. I know that I would have, right? But I asked the question of myself this morning, would I? Do I? What carnage is playing out in our world around us today that I know is happening, and I do nothing? I want to read you a few statistics of things that are happening in our world today. According to the most recent estimate, malnutrition, as measured by stunting growth, affects 32.5% of children in developing countries, one of three. In many cases, their plight began even before birth with a malnourished mother. The world does provide enough food to feed everyone. It's just not distributed well. Children are suffering and dying of hunger every day around the world. One-third of the world's population lacks sufficient access to safe drinking water and sanitation to meet their basic needs. Dirty water causes over 3 million deaths each year. This can be compared to 10 jumbo jets crashing every day 90% of the passengers being children. Can you imagine if just two jets carrying children crashed on a single day? What kind of media coverage, what kind of national response we would have to a tragedy like that? And yet it happens tenfold every day, and it's not even a blip on our radar screen. Many people, most of them in tropical countries of the third world, die of preventable, curable diseases. Malaria, tuberculosis, acute lower respiratory infections. These claimed 6.1 million lives in a single year. 164,000 people, mostly children under five, died from measles in a single year, even though effective immunization, which includes the vaccine and safe injection equipment, costs less than one U.S. dollar and has been available for more than 40 years. 11 million people in poor countries will die from infectious diseases this year, 
Put a different way, it means that in the next five minutes, 100 people will have died. More than half of them are children under five. We hear the statistics and we realize there is carnage that is happening in the world all around us. This is the Kitty Genovese story that's playing out in our world today. We know that it's happening, and yet what are we doing? How am I responding? Is my heart moved with compassion? Do I feel that sense inside of me that says, I need to do something about that? I know I can't do it all, but something. Is there any part of me that's touched or affected when I hear those kind of statistics? Am I being the neighbor that Jesus is saying, it's time for me to be? Am I allowing God to break my heart over those things? Or do I just change the channel, turn the page of the magazine, close the windows like the people in Kitty's neighborhood did? Walk to the other side of the street with my eyes squeezed shut and my fingers in my ears going, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. My world is much too comfortable, and I'm a little too important to involve my things. As messy as compassion doesn't fit into my life very well. And Jesus is saying it's not okay. (laughs) It is not okay. He is calling us to have a heart like his, a heart that is moved with compassion from the inner, inner place of who we are. And to have that kind of heart, it requires us getting to know Jesus on such an intimate level that we know what's important to his heart and that our heart breaks with the same thing that breaks his heart. It requires us getting to know the heart of the Father and saying, what is important to you? Can you teach me how to love you and to love people the way that you do so that something inside of me is moved to do something for the people that are hurting around me? And if we allow our hearts to be moved by compassion, it does mean that our hearts are going to break sometimes. It does mean that it's going to get messy and it's going to be a little inconvenient. But this is what it means to have compassion. And I'm sure that all of us on some level have felt this kind of compassion, even in the last week and a half, as we've tried to process the the Sandy Hook tragedy. I'm sure there are very few of us in the room, if any, that didn't get choked up or teary-eyed at least at some point over the last couple of weeks as you heard the names of those kids or saw their faces on the screen, the ones who were murdered in that carnage there. And there's something that wells up inside of us when we feel that, like we have to do something. And you see that people are kind of sprouting up with, with things to do even when they don't know what to do, this 26 acts of kindness thing that's been been going around because people just feel compelled by their sense of compassion. Like, I have to do something. I can't just let this pass and do nothing. I have to let this compassion express itself in some way. I know that the statistics that I shared globally in the Sandy Hook tragedy speak to the the larger scale need. But I also contend that there are needs that are unfolding themselves around us every single day in our own neighborhoods. And I think sometimes we miss them because they've just become part of the landscape of what is. They're just there. It's part of normal life, kind of like those statistics I read. I'm sure those aren't a shock to any of you. You've heard them before. And yet they just kind of become, well, it's just what's there. It becomes part of the normal landscape. 
And yet there are people all around us that could use a heart of compassion, a heart that's, that's stirred to do something and to make a difference. There's the single mom that lives next door or the family across the street that lost a job, is unemployed, is struggling. There's the kid that comes over to play with your kids that you can just tell he's just hurting somewhere deep inside. There are the families that are struggling with a a sickness or an illness that's just been a huge challenge for them. There are families that are in the midst of an emotional devastation of a divorce or a separation or some huge rift within that family. And Jesus is saying, these are your neighbors. These are the people right in your path. Are you going to let me come in and give you a heart like mine, even though it means that your heart might break a little bit, even though it means that that's going to compel you to some kind of action, saying, I need to do something, even if it gets a little messy? Or are we just going to walk to the other side of the road? in our self-centered world and walk away with our own hearts unchanged and walk away from a situation that could be changed if we got involved, if we made a difference in somehow. I challenge you to consider how God might be spurring your heart, prompting you to say, let me build compassion in you. Release your heart just a little bit so that I can come in and, and break it just a little bit, break it in the right places with the right things, with the things that are going to make a difference. And maybe for you this morning, you were affected by those global statistics. I encourage you, act on that. We have that global giving opportunity for you. There are HIV AIDS people that you can give to. There are men starving in a prison that you can give to. You can meet needs in a very real way. I encourage you, if that's what God is doing in your heart, give till it hurts. 100% of what you give goes directly to those ministries. Daybreak doesn't get anything out of that. It's not a cut off the top. It goes straight to those ministries. And if that's what God is prompting to you, give. Give till it hurts. Give till it feels a little messy there. If your heart is stirred by the Sandy Hook tragedy, then do something. The 26 acts of kindness or, or get a list of the kids' families and pray like you've never prayed before for those families, for God's peace and God's healing and God's protection there. Or maybe it's for the person next door. Maybe God's saying, tangible act. Find something that you can do. Many of us are going to be involved with our families over the next few days as we celebrate Christmas. I would imagine that most of us in our family somewhere has someone who could use compassion in a tangible way. Even if it's not a physical gift, maybe it's an emotional gift that you need to give to them. An extra measure of grace. An extra measure of forgiveness. It's an act of compassion. Allow God to break your heart with compassion. Allow him to move your heart by compassion. It's going to be messy, and it's going to cost you something, and that's what brings us to our next point in the outline this morning. Loving my neighbor gets messy when I personally sacrifice to meet the need. When I personally sacrifice to meet the need. Jesus continues the story and kind of explains what the Samaritan actually did, the sacrifice that he made. He says in verse 34, going over to him, The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, 
the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. It was that gut-level compassion that prompted the Samaritan to do something. It says going over to him, going over to him. The Samaritan moved toward the need. He didn't back away, which I think is sometimes our tendency. We see a need, and then, oh, that looks a little messy, and so we back away. No, the Samaritan, he went over to him. He didn't stop to see, look around to see if someone else was going to help. There's someone else that maybe could step in and in his place. He went toward him. And he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, and he bandaged them. And then he put him on his donkey and took him to an inn. He got off his donkey, and he did something. Okay? (laughs) He got off his donkey, and he did something. He got up, and he made a difference. And he used this wine and this olive oil to bandage his wounds, which, remember, this guy was traveling on a dangerous road. He wouldn't have been carrying extra stuff with him that he didn't need. He wouldn't have been able to go to his medicine cabinet in his bathroom at home and pull out the extra stuff that he didn't need, what he had on him would have been used for another purpose, intended for another purpose. It wasn't like just some extra stuff that he had. If he was carrying it with him, there was some purpose for which he was going to use it. And yet he decided, I need to use it for this need in front of me. Instead of what I had intended it for, I need to redirect it because this need is too pressing right in front of me to not use it. It cost him something. There was a personal sacrifice involved. And then he even pays monetarily the innkeeper and says, take care of this guy. And if his bill runs higher, then I'll pick up the tab when I come back through. And you know how much those minibar items cost in those hotels. Like, I'm sure it was not a small bill when he came back through. But he's saying, you know what? I will sacrifice what I have. I'm going to use what's in my hands, what's available to me, and I'm going to use it to make a difference. His compassion caused him to personally sacrifice for this man, who, remember, is a man that likely, had he been conscious, would have despised him had he known who it was that was caring for him. You know, sometimes I think we exclude ourselves from getting involved in making a difference because we feel like, I don't have anything. What do I have to offer? And so we make these excuses, and we honestly, it's pathetic because we live in one of the most wealthy nations in the world, the wealthiest nations in the world even in the light of the current economy, and I know people are, are hurting a little bit right now, but still comparatively to the rest of the world, our problems are very minuscule compared to the rest of the world. And I hope that you can laugh at that a little bit this morning because I have a video to show you that um, hopefully will put into perspective the suffering that we experience here in our first world issues. So let's take a look at our first world problems. Every year of every day, thousands of people fall victim to FWP. I'm so cold. Starving. Nobody cares about me. Also known as first world problems. I'm so cold. Somebody set the AC to 72. I needed it 73. Starving. All we have is leftovers. Nobody cares about me. Nobody commented or liked my status. Hi, I'm Ryan Higa. And for just five hours of attention a day, you could help somebody with FWP. Everyone keeps putting so much pressure on me. I don't know what I want for my birthday. I have too much chips for my dip. If I open a new dip, I'll have too much dip for my chips. Why does Apple keep making new iPhones? Now I have to get another one? They've been through so much struggle. The remote's over there, but I'm all the way over here. So much hardship. My iPhone 5 is too big for my skinny jeans. So much attention. Attention, attention, attention. I poured my cereal without checking to see if we had milk. 
So please, show your support and send them this video. And show them how much we care about their FWPs. I bought too many groceries. Now I'll have to make two trips. All you have to do is call the URL, 1-800.org. I'm glad you could laugh at that a little bit, but it does put it in perspective for us, doesn't it? The things that we think are so dramatic in our lives, we have nothing, we're in such a sorry state. The reality is, many times we're making big deals out of little things. And if you don't believe me, just scan your Facebook page, see what people are complaining about. This might be a over-the-edge parody, but you realize, like, the outrage that you see that I had to wait 10 minutes for my bloomin' onion to get to my table at the Outback, or I can't believe that I can't get a nail appointment before Christmas, and my world is ruined because I can't have sparklies on my fingers in time for the holidays. Like, these are things that we complain about, and we consider our own suffering. They consume our energy. They consume our time. They consume our resources. And God's saying, get a grip. <laughs> get a grip on reality. There is true suffering in this world. This is what Jesus is calling us away from, this self-focused world. And he's saying, get a perspective on the things that really matter. And through this story, he's telling us, get a grip on reality and put some skin in the game. It's time to sacrifice a little something of all of this excess that you have to make a difference in this world. You know, in order to help the man who was beaten, the Samaritan would have had to have gotten right down in the ditch with him. The man was beaten half dead. So you have to imagine that there would have been a lot of blood and gore and nastiness involved there. And yet the Samaritan got right down in the ditch with him. And he lifted him up on his donkey. And I know that there's no way that he could have done that and walked away without getting that mess all over himself as well. But he couldn't walk away. Because that's what happens when you're moved by compassion. When you're willing to sacrifice a little something of yourself, you move toward the mess. And in order for us to make a difference in this world, we have to be ready, especially, especially, especially as the body of Christ, we have to be ready to move toward the mess, not to back away and pretend that it's a Christmas card. We need to move toward the mess that is this world. And it doesn't mystically or magically happen. It takes intentional effort because if we're not intentional about moving it toward it, you know where we end up? We end up right back in our I-have-no-chips-for-my-dip kind of world, right? That's where we go back. We default that back to there. But we have to move towards the mess, and it's not convenient. And you know, we may not be able to help everyone everywhere, but we can help the people that are right in our path, that Jesus puts in our path. You know, one time uh, when I was a teenager, I had a chance to visit Haiti. And um, I was walking along a street one time, and it was in a village that didn't have a very good sanitation system. And so the, the side of the street had like this little concrete ditch that was the sewer system. Um, so people would do their thing right there in the, the little sewer ditch or some of it would kind of run down through that would be dumped from other places. But it wasn't enclosed or anything or contained or anything. And so I'm walking down the street. There weren't a lot of people around, but there were a number of children that were jumping around and looking at this strange, very pale, pasty-looking person that was walking down trying to figure out what on earth was this white person doing in my village. 
And so this one little boy in particular was jumping around and kind of, you know, darting back and forth. And wouldn't you know it, the poor guy, he trips and he falls and he takes a header right into the sewer. On the way down, he like does a face plant onto the concrete. And so this poor little guy is in this sewer ditch covered with nastiness. And he sits up, and I see, like, he's crying, and he's bleeding like crazy, because you know how wounds from the mouth and the lip just bleed like crazy. This is getting really gory today, isn't it? I'm sorry, I didn't realize until now I'm saying it. There's a lot of ick stuff here. So Merry Christmas to all. So anyway, he's, he's bleeding, and there's this blood coming out of his mouth, and, and he's crying, and then because he's crying, there's also stuff coming out of his nose, and it's all, like, mixed together, and he's covered in all this stuff from the sewer ditch. And my first reaction, of course, when a kid falls, your first reaction is, oh. And then my second reaction was, oh. <laughs> like, ah, like I want to do, like I should do something. I know that I have to do something, but oh, that's really gross. And so I was having this moment's hesitation in my mind of like, what, what do I do? Because I, I don't know if I can touch that because that's disgusting. But to actually like just do this would have not been effective either. And so I had this moment where I had to decide what, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to this situation? And thankfully, in that one moment, I chose well. And I said, you know what? <sighs> I just have to get dirty. I just have to suck this one up. And yes, I'm going to be a mess. And I, but if I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. And so I reached down, and I scooped this guy up. And he looks at me in the eyes, and then he buries his face in my shoulder. <laughs> and in that moment, I'm holding him, and I'm like, this is disgusting. <laughs> like, It truly was. Like, it smelled bad. It looked bad. It was just gross in every sense of the the word. But we were able to get him cleaned up. A couple other people came over then, and we wiped him up. And I actually used part of my skirt to, like, wipe some of the crud off of him and get his stuff cleaned up. And in the end, he was okay. His world was, was made right again. But, you know, I think there are many times in our lives when we have to make a decision like that. I think there are many moments in life where we see something that we feel like, oh, I need to, and then we have that, oh, but I can't. There's this fear that comes up inside of us. What if I get dirty? What if it costs me too much? What if I don't have enough resources? What if I can't follow through? What if I can't? So we do the, oh, and we pull back. There are a lot of moments in life where we are at a crossroads and we need to make a decision. Are we going to dive in? or not? Are we going to roll up our sleeves and say, I am in this, I am in the mess, I'm willing to go where Jesus went, I'm willing to get a little dirty for it. And as Christians, I think we clean Jesus up so much that sometimes he is nothing more than a beautiful picture on a Christmas card. It's a picture that will never require us to get our hands dirty. It just looks sparkly and pretty, and we can set it on a shelf and enjoy watching it. That's not what Jesus called us to. That's not what Jesus taught, and that's certainly not how Jesus lived. That wasn't the life that Jesus lived, because ultimately the truth is that Jesus was the good Samaritan in a very real sense of the word. He saw us laying there in our own little sewer ditch. We took a header in there from the middle of our broken world, And there we laid in our own filth. We laid there in that ditch, covered in our own selfishness, covered in our own arrogance, our own pride, our own apathy, 
our own lies, betrayals, addictions, hatred, anger, prejudices, pain. This is the filth that covered us. And I believe Jesus looked at us and he did the, okay, I'm in. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to dive straight to the heart of it. And you know, Jesus didn't just cross a road for us. He crossed the universe for us. He left a place where he was glorified and honored, a place of purity and holiness, magnificence and power, where he was worshipped and creatures surrounded him, praising him for the glory that he was. He left that place and entered the ditch, (laughs) entered a broken and a messed up world. And in this world, he was despised and rejected just like that Samaritan was. And in spite of all of it, he rolled up his sleeves and said, I'm in it with you. He showed us compassion. He showed us love. And he didn't walk away clean. He walked away messy. He walked away bloody. He walked away dirty. He walked away with the sin of every person on his shoulders. He got into the thick of it. And he cleaned us up through the power of his resurrection that happened at Easter. He cleaned us up and set our world right again. It says in John 3.16 and 17 in the message version, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help. He came to put the world right again. He came to show us what it means to love. He could have come in power and in force. Instead, he came in humility. He came knowing full well what it was going to cost him. Why did he do it? To show us what it means to let our hearts be broken by the right things, to show us what it means to lay down our lives for someone else, to show us what it means to love in a way that gets messy, but to help us understand that this is what true love is. It doesn't stop until the broken are healed. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for being who you are, (laughs) a God willing to get in the ditch with us. And God, I ask that you teach us to have a heart like yours. I pray, God, that you teach us to know you so intimately that we see the people the way you see people, that we see our neighbors and our friends and our family members and even the people across the globe the way that you see them. And I pray that our hearts would be broken with the things that break your heart. Teach us, God, to love like you love. Teach us to have hearts of compassion, hearts that are willing to love you and to love others no matter what the cost. Thank you, God, for getting dirty for us. You are a God of glory and of honor and of purity and of power. And you didn't have to, but you got into the ditch with us. And words can never express our gratitude. We love you, God.
Amen. This morning, we are going to uh, celebrate communion together. And I uh, hope that this morning you understand that communion was God's invitation for you to love and to be loved. For you to come to his table and say, I, I don't get for, I don't, I don't, can't earn my way to you. So I accept your forgiveness. I accept your salvation. And so we invite you this morning to love Jesus. But make no mistake, to love Jesus is to love his mission, which is to love people. So allow God to speak to your heart and expand and grow your heart in love this morning. Um, the, communion, the servers are going to serve communion to you this morning. And uh, you can just sit with it, allow God to speak to you, and then we'll take it together.